Today we are starting a brand new series uh, that is actually from a brand new book that has come out by a pastor, a Canadian pastor, in the, uh, he's in Barrie, Ontario, I think, and his name is Carrie Newhoff. If you put the, uh, the first slide on the screen there, yeah, and uh, Carrie Newhoff, a hard name to pronounce, uh, but has a huge following, his, his podcast is enormous in leadership circles, uh, Christian and non-Christian. And uh, I listened to him quite often, and he came out with this book, and I said, oh, my goodness, there's some good stuff in here. Uh, so the name of the book is Didn't See It Coming. So I, I make no apologies. Uh, this, is, this is really uh, coming from him, and I you know, massaged and put my own stuff in there. Uh, but you should all go out and get a copy of this book because he talks about the seven greatest challenges that everyone experiences but nobody expects. They didn't see it coming. And he talks about cynicism, which we'll do today, compromise, uh, disconnection, irrelevance, pride, burnout, and emptiness. Say, wow, I'm glad I came to church today. Here's the, here's the thing that I've, I've noticed uh, in dealing with people over the years. Everybody does experience these things to a degree, to, to uh, whatever level of intensity. Sometime in your life, you have dealt with these seven issues, these seven problems. And usually what happens is you deal with them when it's too late. You, you deal with your cynicism when everybody's avoiding you. Uh, you. You deal with your compromise when you make a big mistake, a big moral mistake, and it costs you a whole lot more than you wanted it to. You deal with your, your disconnection with people, your irrelevance, your self-centeredness, your, your burnout. You know, when you're, when you're lying in that hospital bed, your, your emptiness. You know, you deal with them when a big life crisis comes. But we don't often uh, think about them or see these things coming until it's too late. And what I've found is that even Christian people, and in particular Christian people, church people, people of faith, deal with these seven problems. And arguably we deal with them in an even more intense fashion because after all, should a Christian experience this? When's the last time you said to somebody when you went to a Christian thing or a church, how are you doing? Oh, well, I'm very cynical, actually. Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm very proud, actually. I'm struggling with pride. <laughs> how are you doing? Well, actually, I'm burnt out, praise the Lord. Right? We don't, we don't, we're not real honest about these things. And we kind of, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And because for a Christian to deal with these things, there must be something wrong with the Christian, right? And so we hide these things, and so arguably it's worse for us because we're not supposed to deal with these things. These are for people who don't have faith, aren't they? And I found that everybody, regardless, uh, deals with them, and arguably even in a more intense fashion uh, as a Christian. I've dealt with every single one of them, and um, I'll tell you little stories uh, each week. So today we're going to talk about cynicism. So, so stay with me on this. Uh, and how does it happen? I mean, nobody, 
Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I just want to be a cynic, right? I mean, cynicism actually is really old. Uh, it's changed over the last couple of thousand years. But cynicism used to be a philosophy way back in the, in the, in the Greek thought and the philosophers. And even, even the Apostle Paul would have preached probably to a group of cynics. And back in his day, 2,000 years ago, cynicism, it had, it had its roots out of Plato. And the idea, the general idea back then was that, well, you know, the problem with life is we desire things. And if we can stop desiring all these things and all these material things and all these things that make us feel good and we sort of strip our lives and humble our lives and live different than everybody else, then maybe we'll, we'll find out what life really is. And so the cynics would, they deliberately look different than everybody else, and they would say, well, we just follow kind of nature, and we don't, we're not into all of this other stuff, and all of this desire can be a bad thing. And so that, that's kind of the, what it was 2,000 years ago. And uh, Socrates, uh, it, it is said, went to the founder of cynicism and said, ah, he said, I can see your pride through the holes in your cloak. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, you try to make yourself look different. You try to debase yourself, but I can see your pride through the holes in your cloak. You know, he's calling them a bit of uh, hypocrites, really. So fast forward till now, it's kind of changed. So what is cynicism? When you, when you stop hoping, and hope is, you know, is there anything good coming? When you, you stop hoping, you stop trusting. So that speaks of your relationships, and, you know, you're very, very slow to trust other people, uh, maybe even to trust God. And you actually stop believing. So your faith in whatever is kind of non-existent. This is really, really common today. Uh, it's common amongst young people today. Uh, look at, the, look at the, the media that, that youth and young adults consume. It's loaded with cynicism. Look at the characters in the movies and the books and the popular culture. Very cynical. And do you blame them? Right? If you looked around at the world... You say, wow, you know, we look at the political situations around the world. I hope you all vote on October the 1st. Yes. Did you watch the debates? Yeah, I wanted to see a little more action, a little more enthusiasm in the English debate. But anyway, the provincial debate. But we look around at what's going on in the world. We look around at leadership, all these things. And wow, we have some good reasons, our young people could argue, for not hoping, trusting, or believing. Do you know the number one reason? Why young people, youth, young adults are leaving the church, and they're leaving the church in staggering numbers. As I've said the last few weeks, it's not because there isn't enough smoke and mirrors in their churches. It's not because they don't have electric guitars and drums and smoke and lights and, and coffee and, oh, it's just not enough coffee. I'm going to go to another church. That's not why. It's not because they're not loving enough in the church. That's not why. Do you know why the number one reason why young people are leaving the church they fail to believe. They don't believe it anymore, and they drop out. Uh, that's why we're, we're pumping the Reboot Conference. Uh, I've got some young people who have registered for it, and you can go out in the, in the corridor. We have invitations, young people. You can hand them out to your friends. Money is not an object for this. Uh, 
a really strong supporter of ours, Queensway, a church on the Queensway in Toronto has told us, if you have young people who want to go and, and money is an issue because it's a $25 cost, it's an all-day conference for youth, he said, we'll pay. Okay, so, so they, they really want us to do this, and this is a conference November the 3rd, and it will help young people answer some of the questions that they have. But th- th- these are real issues, and, and people are cynical all over the place. Um, how does it happen? Well, not overnight. Uh, cynicism begins not because you don't care. You may not care now if you're a cynic, but it's not because you don't care. It's because you do care, and this is how cynicism starts. Um, I know because I learned uh, how to be cynical um, in the ministry, <laughs> if I'm being real honest with you. Uh, it's, it's as a pastor that cynicism or my kind of observation of cynicism rising in my own life uh, came to be, because cynicism begins when you, you do care. So, you know, a lot of people look at pastoring and they say, man, what an easy job. Like, do you people work? You know, you stand up and you, you know, speaking of pastors, you stand up, you know, for a half an hour on a Sunday morning and that's all you do, right? I mean, it's a real easy job. Can I just tell you, like, what you see on a Sunday morning is a little top layer of what ministry is really all about. I remember, I remember when my dream was to actually be in the ministry and to work in the clergy and to be a pastor. You say, you're crazy. Who would want to dream that, you know? Well, that was, you know, when you're called, I guess that's what happens. And so it was like, oh, if, we could, if I could just be a, an actual pastor, it would be like a dream come true. I was so naive, right? And so it was just, you know, I was in the marketplace and we were, we were newly married and it was like, oh, you know, we feel this call on our lives, but how's it going to ever, ever happen and all this? And, and so it happened. And I ended up, uh, you know, being a pastor, as some of you know, who've journeyed with us over the years uh, in the church that I became a Christian in, and I pastored there for more than 15 and a half years. Uh, but it didn't take long. Uh, for my naivete to develop into cynicism because in the ministry, what you really do is all behind the scenes from Monday to Saturday. So you're, you're trying to help people. You're trying to give people advice. You're trying to counsel people. You're trying to disciple people. You're trying to teach people. You're trying to get people to, you know, walk in God's ways and you, you, you work with them, you marry them, you dedicate their babies, you visit them in the hospitals, you, you, you're with them in their pain, you're with them in their joy, you, 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 you sometimes do funerals for, for them, for their families, you, you, know, you pour your heart and soul into people. And you know what happens is sometimes you get burned and sometimes you experience betrayal and sometimes the people who you poured everything you have i mean sometimes it's literally blood sweat and tears into people's lives and then those same people can turn around and say you know what you don't really care for me uh, you know i'm leaving leaving your church and you know and all you feel like all of what you did is just kind of out the window right and you know and maybe they'll say things about you behind your back or they'll email stuff and you'll hear about it and it's just sort of like oh that 
that hurts. And what happens there is you start to become cynical over time, and you start to learn, even in the ministry, to stop hoping, stop trusting, and stop believing. It begins not because you don't care, but because you do care. Even, you know, clergy, not clergy, whatever you do for a living, you know, you, you see this in your own world, in your own school, in your own marketplace. You see, wow, I poured my heart into this person or into this thing, into this dream, and it's shattered. And why did that happen? And everything is kind of coming to pieces, and this person did this to me or this, this job, this school, this setup, this whatever it is, and all of a sudden you find yourself, I don't hope like I used to. The future does not look good. I don't trust that person because I got burned. I'll never trust another man. I'll never trust another woman because of that relationship that went sour. I never will. And I don't even know if I believe anymore, right? It can happen. Um, and so there's kind of a process that we go through. And I love the way the, the author of this book does it. Um, first and foremost, cynicism starts when you know too much. You know just a little too much. You start to have a variety of experiences, and then you start to, oh, those experiences are changing me, right? So look what, look what the author of Ecclesiastes says um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18. Ecclesiastes, just so you know, is the cynic's guide to the universe, all right? If you want to read a book that's relevant today and relevant for modern thought, it is Ecclesiastes. Here you have this man, uh, presumably it's Solomon, although he doesn't really identify himself. Presumably it is, and Ecclesiastes is a fancy word. It's, a, it's an effort to try and uh, translate a word that needs kind of teacher or guide, and he, he writes from a perspective of he's had everything. He's experienced everything that he can get, and he's very, very cynical. I mean, it's sort of, this is a cynic's guide to the universe. This is what life is like without God. You know too much. So he says this in the opening chapter. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. Oh, the more knowledge, the more grief. The more I know, the wiser I got, the more grief I experienced, right? So he's been around the block a little too much, and he starts to say, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And the more I know, the more cynical I become is his observation. I don't know if you've been there, but the more experiences that you have, Wow, you, you have to make a choice at some point not to get cynical. Then what do you do? You, you project the past into the future. And so, well, this is what happened when I had this type of connection with this person. And that's going to happen again. So, yeah, I, I will not trust I will not hope, I will not believe, because I did that once before, and I saw what happened, and that's going to therefore happen again. And so I, I project into the future what I've experienced in the past. And this is really, really tricky, because what do people tell us when we want to do something? 
they say, well, you know, if you have some dream on your heart, you know, and you want to, I don't know, you want to start up a business or you want to, you know, you really want to make a difference in your world. And, and what do people tell you? They say, well, what have you done in the past? Whatever you've done in the past is a predictor of what you'll do in the future, right? So this is what we're told by people who, you know, we, we go for advice or we, we, we go to those who've done what we want to do, and that's what they say. Well, what have you done? That will be what you will do, isn't it? And so we learn to take the past and to project it into our future. And if our past experience is painful and hurtful, then what do we do? That starts to come into what we think will come. And then ultimately we make a decision. Someone's phone has a beautiful ringtone. Well, you can go. It's all right. Yeah. Just wave to the people on Facebook. Yeah. Just so you know, Facebook people, there's a phone ringing. So, so he's really embarrassed now. Yeah. It's messed up my whole message, you know. Yeah. Did you, did you, should we get pizza too? No. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad we're friends, Sean. You're, you're a lot bigger than me. <laughs> so, uh, where was I? Yeah, so cynicism. You, you actually make a decision to, to be a cynic. It may not be a conscious decision, but you do make a decision, right? And you say, I'm closing my heart to other people. Uh, I will not hope. I hoped before. And I know what that turned out like. I trusted before, and I know what that ended up like. I believed so many things before. I believed in a brighter tomorrow. You know, I believed that this would happen or that would happen, and I saw it didn't. And so what do we do? We say, I'm not going to experience that again, and we make a decision. It's either conscious or not so conscious, but there is a decision that we make because we base it on a perspective. And then we're in this cynical life and the, the problem with it is it infects all of our all of our life so your your relationships with other people are going to be affected your your professional life your personal life your spiritual life it's all going to be infected including your relationship with god i just need to be really honest with you as a pastor there's many many times where I've experienced things and I have literally felt my faith just drop like a stone. Literally felt like I had none left after certain, certain experiences, usually having to do with people, you know, and, and you just feel your heart just drop like a stone. I, that's the only way that I can describe it. And yes, ministers do experience that uh, often. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story about, about burnout. Uh, later when we get to burnout, the psychologist told me I was burnt in, not burnt out. Okay, I'll keep you on edge on that one, okay? But it, it affects all your, it infects all of your life, this, this cynicism. And it's very, very powerful. And it's very, very um, deceptive. And at many times, we didn't even see it coming until, boom. The crisis happens. You know, our, our marriage is over. Our 
we lost our job. We, I mean, whatever it is, there's some big crisis, some big event that had its roots in our cynicism that caused a, a catastrophe to happen. And maybe if the cynicism wasn't there, it wouldn't have happened because it was a self-made horror show because of cynicism. So sorry to depress you. Uh, this morning. I know it's been a really great celebration. You know, your pastor's blubbering in tears, <laughs> and then you come up and you hear about cynicism. So, you know, you can all go home now, and we'll continue next week. You know, you want to hear the, you want to hear the antidote? Do you want to hear how to beat cynicism? It's a really good story. It's really, really good. It's the best, it's the best story in the world, okay? There is an antidote to cynicism, and I'm telling you, we have a really tremendous opportunity as, as Christian folks, as people of faith, whatever you want to call us. We have the most powerful antidote in the world to cynicism. You know what it is? It's a four-letter word. It's not a bad word. Hope. Say it with me. Oh, hope. Hope is the antidote to cynicism, you say, well, it doesn't sound very, I thought I lost hope as a cynic, right? Well, let me tell you about hope the way that it's defined um, as per the writers of the Bible. Just, I'll just take one, for example. Um, and this is, this is the Apostle Paul writing, writing to a couple of different churches. And this is how he talks about hope, okay? Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he says, Therefore, and you have to read why the therefore is there, uh, but the idea that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so in other words, God looks at our life and he says, you are justified because you believe. So because you have believed in, in me, because you have believed in the work that Christ did for you on the cross, I look at you and I see you as just. I see you as holy since we have been justified by faith, not by what we do. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we skip over that so, so quickly in churches. We have peace with God. No longer are we at war with God. We have peace with God. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, he says, in hope of the glory of God. In hope of the glory of God. So there is something coming, the writer is saying. There is something coming because we know that Jesus died. We know that Jesus rose from the dead, and we know that there is something coming as a result. And we have a hope that we rejoice in, that we glory in, because we know that Jesus of Nazareth died and rose from the dead. This is his argument. Uh, and, you know, maybe young people who are here or people who you struggle with some of the Bible. Can I just tell you, like, the main hinge of Christianity is not whether or not the world was created in 624 literal days. Okay, the, the jury's out 
on that one. There are people who say one thing. There are people who say another thing. When you die and you, and you, meet, you, you meet God on the other side, he's not going to quiz you and say, now tell me, six 24-hour days? Is that how I created the world? Because unless you believe that, sorry, right? That's absurd, is it not? So it's not, well, you know, did you believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit in such and such a fashion? You know, after all, you went to a Pentecostal church. Do you believe it that way? Well, sorry. Okay, that, that, this is not a, this, the, the jury's out, right? There's, there's varying thought on a lot of these things. It's not, well, do you believe, did you believe that the future events and the end of time was such and such a sequence? Because, you know, that's really, your salvation is dependent on those things, right? We know that that's, that's kind of absurd. There's a lot of wiggle room in some of these things. So what is the central crux of the argument of, of, uh, of, of Paul? He's saying the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. On this, we take our stand. On this, we are justified. On this, we have obtained grace. On this, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because something is coming. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Excuse me? He says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, I can do that. But he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Is he a masochist? What is he saying? Knowing that suffering produces endurance or in some translations, perseverance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Again, that word hope. And hope does not put us to shame, like cynicism does, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. It does not say, he is not saying, rejoice because of your suffering. No, he says, rejoice not only in the hope of the glory of God and what is to come, but in your sufferings rejoice, not because of them, but in spite of them. Because on the other side of suffering is hope. If you make a decision to look at life through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, on the other side of suffering is hope, not cynicism. When we become cynical, it's because the suffering that we experience, the letdowns that we've experienced, the betrayals that we've experienced, the heartbreak that we've experienced, we make a decision to look at life through those things. But if we say, you know what, I look at life through the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, then at the other end of suffering, there's something. And God can use the pain that I have and the things that I've experienced to build in me the ultimate antidote of suffering, which is hope. And all of us 
regardless of your age and stage in life. All of us have experienced, quote unquote, suffering or in some translations, tribulation. This thing comes into your life like a whirlwind of trouble. And we experience that and we have to decide, is that thing going to make me into a cynic or is that thing at the end of the day when the dust settles going to build in me hope that I can rejoice in. So here's how, here's how it works. When you, when you make that decision, you start to see that you have to persevere through the suffering condition, whatever it may be. You start to say, well, I endure through this. If I'm going to remain optimistic, if I'm going to look at life through the cross and the empty tomb, then I realize that I am persevering, I'm pushing through, I'm walking through it, I'm enduring through it, I'm, I have a, a not give upness about me, I am persevering through that. And you know what happens when you do that enough times in life? Your, your character starts to change. Your character starts to grow. And you say, it's not, oh, I've been through this before, this is how it's going to end, negative. It's, I've been through this before, and I saw at the other end there was hope. I saw at the other end I came through it. I saw in one way or the other, I saw at the other end that God built hope in me once before, and God will build hope in me once again. So I choose to persevere. I choose to see my character start to grow as a result, and then I see hope that makes me stronger. And it does not put me to shame. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is within me. God has poured into our hearts his love through the Holy Spirit. And you go through life with that perspective, and you're going to see your suffering is actually a tool that will turn ultimately at the end of the day when the dust settles, however it settles, into hope. Maybe that's not convincing enough. Paul, he, he, he gets into some detail about this, and so do a lot of the other writers of the New Testament. Here's a passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's writing to another church there in Thessalonica. And here he's going to talk about the big one. He's going to talk about the ultimate enemy of life. Uh, it's a lot worse than cynicism. Uh, the ultimate enemy, the last enemy in some passages in the Bible, is what? It's, it's death. And he's going to say, let me tell you about hope even in the midst of the worst travail you will ever face. And he says to the people there, we do not want you to be ignorant. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, which is his word of saying those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And it does, he's not saying, by the way, don't grieve. He's saying, I'm going to tell you something so that you grieve, but you don't grieve like people who have no hope. You grieve like people who do have hope. And here's his argument once again. Since we believe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again, Something is coming. This, this Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him 
those who have fallen asleep. This speaks of a resurrection of the dead. The great promise that we have, the great hope that we have is if Jesus himself rose from the dead, if he was really dead that day, uh, traditionally that Friday, that good Friday, and he rose from the dead, then guess what that means? One day you will too. And when I speak of the resurrection of Jesus, I'm not talking about a fantasy or a fable or a myth. Okay, this is not the way it's addressed in the New Testament, and this is not the way that history addresses it. I'm talking about something that you can stake your life on. I'm talking about a hope that is unchanging, that nothing can change, nothing can take away, nothing can beat it, no diagnosis from a doctor can beat it. It is the hope that death itself, the ultimate enemy, is actually beaten through Jesus and his resurrection. And you, as people of faith, one day you will experience the same thing. You will experience that it is not over even when you face the grave. It is not the end of the story because even the grave itself has been defeated by Christ. Man, if you really believe that, that is going to give you hope, yes? I don't know if you've ever experienced death before in the sense of, none of you have yet, right, or you wouldn't be here, but in the sense of someone in your family, a friend, a relative, a co-worker, a fellow schoolmate, somebody has experienced it and they've gone to the other side and you were, you were at their funeral, you, you were grieving with their family and you know what it's like to lose in death. Because that person is gone. All you have left are the memories. And it's an irreversible thing. And they're not coming back. This is why the, 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 the scripture talks about it. Is it's the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. Even death cannot stop the follower of Christ. Even death itself. And Paul is saying you can stake your life on it. Whatever you face, even that grave, you hold on to Christ and you will see that that grave even is beaten. Wow. I mean, that'll, that'll cure your cynicism real fast if you can look at life through that lens, right? If you can look at it that way and not as a cynic. Then you can go along this path that Paul talks about. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. But let me close with some practical things. Because sometimes you need to be a little more, shall we say, feet on the ground. You know, it's one thing to talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's another to say, okay, what practical ways can I put this into? Like, how do I grow that hope? Right? And there's some really cool practical ways of doing it. And I'll give you, I'll give you one thing to think about today. Uh, and that is curiosity. Curiosity inspires hope. Curiosity, I mean, if you're not curious, you'll never really care about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right? It is a little bit curious. Uh, curiosity is a great way to practically stir up hope in your life. Um, I am I, a very, very curious person. Uh, ask my wife and daughter. It's like I have to know, I stick my nose in everything. I'm what you call a nosy parker. Have you ever heard of that? 
right? I'm all, I want to know about it. What's going on? I want to know. I'm nosy, curious, ask questions. Do you know the, the guy in the Bible who is the most nosy, who asked the most questions? The, one of the 12 guys who followed Jesus. Do you know who the guy was who was the most nosy? Sometimes it got him in real trouble. It's on the screen. You can cheat, right? Peter, yeah. He was really nosy. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you observe Peter and you compare him to the other guys, you can see he's a nosy Parker. He's sticking his nose in sometimes where it doesn't belong. He's asking Jesus some very, like, are you really going to ask him that question? And he, he asked Jesus some very pointed questions. Jesus rarely answers his questions. Sometimes he does, but he rarely answers his questions. Jesus rarely answers anybody's questions, actually. If you read the Gospels, you see a lot of people challenge him, question him. Most of the time, he doesn't answer. He takes the conversation a different direction. Quite interesting. But ask questions. Ask questions about life. It'll stir up hope, curiosity. Here's a great question to ask. Why? Some of you who have children, you can't stand that question because they're asking you that question all the time. Why? Because they're hopeful. Maybe you lost your hope, but they didn't. That's why they ask you why all the time. Why, 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 why? And if you have multiple children, you have exponential questions. Why? Right? If you know you got four boys, why, 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 why? From morning to night, they ask why. And don't ask me why I asked why, right? Why, 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 Dad? Because they're optimists, because they're curious, because they're hopeful, because they believe they have not become cynical like their parents, right? Learn to ask why again. Learn to ask why not. You can't do that. You can't do that. Really? Why not? Uh, uh, what's the barrier? You, that'll build hope in you right? Well, why not? You know, Peter, are you going to ask me to walk on the water? <laughs> he says to Jesus, you talk about a hopeful question. I mean, and he, you know, he sticks his foot out there, but of course he, he starts drowning fairly quickly, but at least he asked, right? Why not? What is the barrier that, that I need to defy? Uh, that will build hope in you. Ask why, ask why not. It'll make you dream again. Um, give fewer answers. Jesus didn't give that many answers to people's questions. Give fewer answers. So James, he says, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, ah, and slow to become angry. And we usually do the reverse, right? We're quick to be angry, right? We're quick to speak, and we're we're very slow to listen. So you want to build hope? While people are talking to you, don't give the answer. Just, just listen. Just listen to what people have to say. Just don't, don't give an answer all the time to things. Don't think you always have to. Sometimes life doesn't have that many answers anyway. Um, give fewer answers, and it'll make you think more. It'll make you learn more about people, and it'll practically start to build some hope in you. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, again, as the, as the New Testament were argued, we have a dead man who rose. Aren't you, aren't you glad about that? We have a dead man who rose. And there are people who are watching on, on Facebook Live today. And, you know, they need to know that. 
We, we have a dead man who, who rose. And, and nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. And if it happened to him as a prototype, if you will, of what is going to happen one day. One day we have that great hope made manifest. So you hold on and you say, well, through the suffering, through the temptation to become cynical, I remember the dead man who rose. I remember that at the end of the day, when all the dust settles, after all the experiences of life, if I hold on to him, I've got perseverance, I've got character, and I've got hope, and a hope that will transcend that great enemy, even death itself.